We're in the first chapter of Romans again this morning. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles. In Romans 1, Paul is just starting to take us through his detailed explanation of the gospel message, the good news of God regarding his son, Jesus Christ. We looked a few weeks ago at the purpose statement of the letter, the theme uh, for all that Paul writes in these 16 chapters that we have in the book of Romans, and we saw that in verses 16 and 17. We said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the message that saves for everyone who believes it. No one is saved apart from the good news of Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying on the cross, and being raised again. There is nothing else that saves and reveals God's righteousness. Our own righteousness, man's good works, do not measure up to God's righteousness. In fact, they are worthless compared to God's righteousness. In order to be saved, we need to be credited with the righteousness of God, and that only comes through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. Now, having stated that in verses 16 and 17, Paul then started off in verse 18 with a look as to why the gospel is necessary. Why does God need to reveal his righteousness through his Son? Why isn't man's righteousness good enough? Why can't we be saved on our own? Starting in verse 18, Paul begins with a detailed look at fallen man, man living his life apart from God. From verse 18 of chapter 1 down until we get to verse 20 of chapter 3, we're going to be dealing with the problem of sin, the depravity and the sin of man. Because this is where the discussion has to start. In order for someone to understand their need for a Savior, they need to have an understanding of just what it is that they need to be saved from. And that is salvation from their own sin and unrighteousness. I think we look at the idea of mankind incorrectly at times. We look at mankind, the world as a whole, as this big neutral mass of people. And we say, okay, some of the people will go over here and be saved but others will go over here and be judged. We want more people to come over here to salvation, so we need to convince them that they shouldn't go over there, but should come over here instead. We look at, the, we look at it like the mass of humanity is up for grabs, but that's not the correct way to look at it. All of mankind is already over there. All of mankind starts out over there. There is no neutral lump of humanity. There is a sinful and unrighteous lump of humanity whose only hope is in accepting the gospel that will take them from that lump and place them into the saving arms of the Savior, Jesus Christ. I mentioned an analogy a few weeks ago of people in the water, and those who have been saved have been taken out of the water by faith in the gospel and put onto a boat. That's the picture we're talking about here, that Paul is presenting here in these first chapters. Mankind is in the water, drowning in their own sins. They are not in danger of falling into the water. They are already in the water. And not only that, but they are refusing to believe that there's a boat that they can safely enter into. And they are purposefully swimming away from it. That's the state of fallen, sinful man. For the rest of chapter 1, Paul's discussion is regarding the fallen state of man without any special revelation from God. These would be the Gentiles, those to whom Jesus didn't come, those to whom God gave no special direct revelation. He'll move on to those who have received special knowledge of God when we get to chapter 2. But to start off, we're talking about those who haven't. People in the world out living for themselves. What is true of them? Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed against them. He said in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Without God, fallen man has no righteousness. He is ungodly, unrighteous. And Paul tells us what he does at the end of the verse. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. For the next few verses, which we looked at in our last study, we see that God has revealed himself to all men in what we call his general revelation. But man chooses to suppress what he knows about God. 
he goes on in verse 19 telling us what this truth is that they are suppressing. Verse 19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse, he says. This ties directly in with the statement in verse 18 that they suppress the truth. There is no excuse for them. This is them swimming away from the boat. They know God. They have knowledge of him. And someday when they stand before him, they will not be able to claim, but I never knew. No, they have no excuse. And so he continued on in verse 21 for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Every man and woman knows that God exists. Even those that claim to be atheists are just in denial of what they really know. There is a God, and they are accountable to him. Through creation, through all that God has made, he is clearly seen. Did anyone take me up on my firecracker challenge from a couple of weeks ago? Did anyone make a watch or a butterfly by lighting off firecrackers? I didn't think so. Man wants to pretend that God doesn't exist, so he suppresses that truth and makes up his own fables, makes up his own theories and ideas on how things might work, and completely ignores the truth that they come from God, much like the Big Bang Theory that they've come up with. An, an explosion just happened to create it all. It's for that reason that God's wrath is on them. It's being revealed against them. So, instead of acknowledging God, man makes up his own gods, makes up his own idols, things that he can control, things that he will not have to be accountable to, so that he can, in effect, be his own God. That's what he's talking about when he says, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. He takes what rightfully belongs to God and gives it to himself or to some other portion of the creation, anything he can think of that isn't the true God. That is the foolishness of fallen man, and there are consequences for this sort of foolishness. God reveals his wrath against their rejection of him even today. There are consequences for their rejection even now. And that is what we're going to see as we continue on, starting in verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. We'll see a series of statements starting in verse 24 that explain to us the atrocities of sin starting with the sexual depravity and decadence that plagues our world. And we'll see that it's a manifestation of God's judgments against man for their rebellion against him. So take a look with me at how he starts this off in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. First, we note the word therefore. And of course, when we see the word therefore, we need to understand what it's there for. It's a word that ties this verse with what came before it. And that's the truth of man's rejection and rebellion against God that we saw in verse 23. They reject God. They exchange the glory that rightfully belongs to him for something that is corruptible. Therefore, Paul says, God gave them over. This is a significant phrase here. God gave them over or handed them over. He's going to use the same phrase three times through the rest of the chapter. Here in verse 24, down in verse 26, and then again in verse 28. Three times we'll see him say this. God gave them over. The use of this phrase has its roots in the working of God in the Old Testament. When God was going to punish a nation, he would deliver them over or give them over to their enemies. He even gave Israel over to other nations for judgment. Paul is using this phrase to show this as a form of his judgment upon them. It ties back to what we started off the section with in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is the action of God against those who do what? 
suppress the truth and unrighteousness. People who don't honor him as God, darken their foolish hearts, exchange glory that belongs to him and give it to the corruptible creation instead, are without excuse. God gave them over. This is part of his wrath and judgment against them. He starts off in verse 24 by telling us, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Mankind is consumed in his own sinful passions, the lusts of his heart. God's judgment against him is that he is handed over to that very sin that he lusts after, to those passions that he has. Some want to temper this, and they want to say, this just means that God allows them to do what they want, that he just turns a blind eye to them. But that's not what we see here. This is God's sovereign action upon them. God is handing them over to be consumed by that for which they lust after. And what we're going to see are the depths to which depraved man falls when he indulges in the lusts of his heart. Now, we need to keep something in mind here. This in no way means that God is causing them to sin. By saying that he gave them over to their sins, it in no way means that he is responsible for choices that they make in their hearts. It's important that we understand this, and I think we should take it, uh, take a look at James chapter 1. So turn over there with me for a minute. James talks about whether it can ever be said that God is the cause of sin. We talk about God's sovereignty and how nothing goes on without his knowledge, even apart from his sovereign will. And then some take that and say, well, that must mean that he causes sin. But that's not the case at all. Look, look at James chapter 1, verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see, God doesn't cause the sin. What does? Your own lust causes the sin. A person lusts, they want something, they crave something, and then they act upon that craving, and that gives birth to their sin. So back in Romans, that's what we see here as well. God isn't making them sin. He's not making them do something that they don't want to do. I think that's what we fail to remember. It goes, to back, it goes back to what I said before about the neutral lump of humanity. This is, there is no neutral lump. There is a sinful lump. They are already sinful. They already have the lust to do it in their heart. They are already embroiled in their own craving and desire for sin. God is just giving them over to that as part of his judgment upon them. We tread carefully here because we know God is not causing their sin, but he's also not completely hands-off with them either. There's a school of thought that says that God just throws up his own hands and has no involvement with man, but that's not altogether true either. God is active in his judgment here. I think the best way that I understand it would be if we were dealing with someone who's a drunk, someone who is drinking himself to death and he had no interest in stopping. And maybe we, we pick him up in our car and we're willing to do something to help him, but he's made it clear that he doesn't want that help. Even though it means that he could stop, he doesn't want to. He has no desire to. And so we say, fine. And we let him out of the car in front of a liquor store and right there in front of a bar. Now, they've been given over to their sin. We're not causing their sin. They were already involved in it. We may have dropped them off, but we aren't making them drink. They still have to make that choice for themselves, although it's pretty clear what they will choose according to their desire. And that's how I see what's happening here. God is allowing fallen man to indulge in his sins. Through his sovereignty, there are even conditions that may make it easier for these things to happen. But just because the opportunity exists for them to partake, that doesn't absolve them of their sin and make God responsible for them indulging in those sins. Now, at the end of verse 24, he's talking about impurity. He says, so that their bodies are dishonored among them. 
And that is the purpose of this. They desire or they dishonor their own bodies by what they do. This impurity, this sexual degradation that they engage in, this is sexual immorality. This word is used over and over again in the New Testament to talk about sexual immorality. That is what they do with their lusts. They And they alone are responsible for that. There is a correlation uh, that I don't want you to miss here. Back up in verse 21, what did we see there? He said they failed to honor him as God. They then took the glory away from him and gave it to what? Corruptible man. Now, in his judgment against them, the impure things that they do so dishonor in their own bodies. They dishonor God, so he hands them over to dishonor themselves. That's really the picture here that that Paul's presenting. Now, we might scratch our heads of this a little bit. I know that I did it first. You mean to tell me that they reject God, they want nothing to do with him, they convince themselves that he doesn't even exist, and so in order to punish them, God gives them free reign to do the things that they want to do in the first place? That's right. Why? How is that even remotely just? Because the things that they end up doing with their lusts only leads to one place. There is one outcome, and that's death. I don't want to get too far ahead, but when we get into chapter 2, we'll see that the things that they do today are things that they are storing up for themselves. Things that at some day, um, someday in the future, there will be a day of judgment where God will take all of those things into account against them. So, God's wrath is going on now in allowing them to indulge their lusts. And all that they do, all those sins that they commit with what they see as freedom, but in reality is really slavery to their sin. All those sins that they commit in the name of freedom are being stored up for them in the day of judgment. The wrath of God is upon them now and will continue to be upon them for all eternity, unless what? The gospel. Salvation comes upon them and they are rescued from that wrath. Um, real quick, turn with me over to Ephesians and the second chapter uh, of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're talking about fallen man. And so we tend to think of it as a we versus them scenario. But we need to be reminded that as believers, we were right there with them. We were on that side of the divide prior to our salvation. So look with me at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul tells us, tells us what was true of us prior to salvation. He says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now take note of what he says in verse 3, and we see how this sounds like what we're talking about in verse one, in, in Romans chapter 1. He says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, look at this, children of wrath, even as the rest. What were we? We were dead in our sins. We were walking according to the world. And we were children of wrath, even as the rest. Prior to our salvation, we were under God's wrath, because we were also formerly living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. That's what we're talking about. We had also been given over to the lusts of our hearts. We were the same as they were. But then what happened? Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were dead and under wrath. Then salvation happened. God happened. And he took hold of us and saved us. And I would love to take us through the rest of these verses in Ephesians, but we don't have the time, and we'll get into this discussion in due time in Romans. But the point is, everyone, until they come to saving faith in the gospel, 
is under the wrath of God, given over to their lusts. We were no better than they were. So back to Romans chapter 1. So in Romans chapter 1, he's talking about sexual immorality here. And in a couple of verses, he's going to bring up a prime example of this, and probably the one example that we all think of when we think about Romans chapter 1. He'll talk about homosexuality. But first, in verse 25, he reiterates what he's already said in verse 23. He said, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and animals and crawling creatures. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. He says the same thing again after telling us that God gave them over to their impurity. Why? Because we can't lose sight of what the true crime is here. What is really at issue? The real issue isn't the impurity that they fall into from having followed after their lusts. It's their rejection of God. That is their true crime. They reject God, suppress their knowledge of him, and that leads them into his wrath, which then takes them into all sorts of sins that stem from that. When we look at the world, what do we see? We see the stuff that's coming in the next chapter, coming next in the chapter. All the filthy perversions that are out there. We have our eyes fixed on these things that Paul is going to talk about here. There are over 20 sins that Paul is going to mention before we're done with chapter 1. But we need to keep in mind that those sins are not the real issue. That's not what's wrong with the world. What is wrong with the world? The world's rejection of God. The fact that fallen man doesn't acknowledge God, doesn't see him as the creator. They would rather worship an idol, an animal. They would rather worship his own foolish image than admit that he is accountable to the Almighty God. That's the real issue, the real problem with the world. These other things that we see listed here are ripples that stem from that one problem. Does anyone here get weeds in their yard? I get weeds in my yard, doing better this year than last year, but, but they're still there. Consider the mighty dandelion. I know some people like dandelions these days, but I don't like them. I see these little yellow flowers, or even worse, the puffy white cotton balls, and I just cringe when I see those in my yard. Now, what do those flowers tell me? That I have a weed in my yard. I have a dandelion. I can see that I have weeds. Now, I can go out and do what? I can mow my yard, and what will that do? It takes out all of those little flowers and all those little puffy white cotton balls, and when I look out at my yard after I've mowed, then all I see is green. So that means I have no more dandelions, right? Well, wrong. If you have a yard, you know that mowing them down does nothing because the weed is still there. You've just chopped off its head. Tomorrow, what will you have? You'll have more of those annoying little yellow flowers. They come right back. Why, why do they do that? Because you have to deal with the root of the problem, which is the root. You didn't get to the root of the weed. The problem in my eyes might be the little yellow flowers that I see all over my yard, but the real problem lies under the ground where it's not obvious. That's what we do with these sins that are listed in Romans chapter 1. They are the yellow flower. But right here in verse 25 and from verses 18 through 23, Paul shows us the root of the problem, the world's rejection of God. They have failed to acknowledge him as God, and they have dishonored him and darkened their hearts against him. And because of that, we see the world characterized by these sins that we have throughout the rest of the chapter. Now look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. So once again, 
we have the effect from the previous cause. Because of the rejection of God, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, God gave them over, this time he says, to degrading passions. Before he said impurity, now it's degrading passions. And how are these degrading passions manifest? He continues on. For their, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Paul starts off here with the example of homosexuality. In verse 24, he simply mentioned sexual immorality. But then after the reminder of their rejection of God, he brings this up. Sexual immorality would be sins against what God has determined to be good within the sexual relationship, which fallen man wants to pervert and take away. God says sex is good within the confines of marriage. Man says no. It's okay anytime, anywhere, under any circumstances. God says it's between one man and one woman. Man says it can be with multiple partners. Today we have the whole hookup culture. Go out and get a, sec a different sexual partner every night if you want. As is the pattern that Paul is establishing here, whatever God says is good, man takes and alters it to fit his own desires exchanges God's truth for his own lies. But here, in the case of the homosexual relationship, man takes it even further than that. Because as Paul makes clear here, this even goes against not just what God has said, but against what he has established in nature, what he's established naturally. He says here, women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And then for the men, he says, in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Homosexuality not only goes against the commands of God, it goes against the very rules of creation that God established. If homosexuality had been meant as the norm, then creation would never have gotten out of the gate. No babies would have ever been made. The thing is, this is so basic, so simple, that for those of us who do acknowledge the Word of God and creation itself, it's ridiculous that this even has to be brought up. This is not natural. But in their sinful passions, this is where fallen man takes himself. Now, I mentioned that we were right there with them in our own lusts prior to our salvation. That doesn't mean that everyone who is saved now was engaged in this sin in, uh, prior to salvation. And it doesn't mean that everyone who is lost today is engaged in the same thing either. But as we all know, especially today, this is something that is running rampant in the world. And every day it seems it's becoming more and more accepted by the world. In fact, you are in more danger in the world today for speaking out against it than you are for participating in it. We look around us and we say, see how far the world has fallen? And there's no doubt that we see this manifest at an alarming rate in the world today. But this isn't restricted to just today. The sin of homosexuality isn't anything new. We sometimes think, well, now we're, we're getting to that period of time that Paul was talking about in Romans 1. No, the world has always been in this period of time, ever since the fall. In Abraham's day, Sodom and Gomorrah, this sin was rampant there. Fallen man engaged in this type of sin in those ancient cities. We have to ask ourselves, why does Paul mention this as the first example to the Romans? Why does he start off with this? He'll mention 21 more sins in the coming verses. Why start off with this one? Because in ancient Rome, or current Rome as it was to Paul, this was normal behavior there as well. I think 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors engaged in homosexuality. The Romans and the Greeks were both known for having homosexuality as a normal course of their culture. In Rome, there were guidelines around how it would all work and what was seen as acceptable and unacceptable. And the only difference was whether or not the person was a free man or a slave. Slaves were okay but not with free men. That's the type of society that this church in Rome was used to. 
They were living in that sort of culture. So when we read about this, it's not something that is just happening today or has gotten so bad that now we have what Paul was talking about. This has been an unnatural exchange that fallen man has engaged in since the fall. Again, not every fallen man or woman, and at different times and different places, the rules of what's normal and acceptable have ebbed and flowed, but this isn't anything unique to our day. And as long as man rejects God, which is going to be until the Lord returns, this won't change. I do think it's important to note that Paul mentions the unnatural designation for homosexuality here. It is not natural. Of course, people today want us to believe differently, that it's just another part of nature. But Paul says here, that's not true. It's an exchange of the natural function, the way that God designed men and women to be. And of course, this, this has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the whole argument of can men be women and women be men and can men get pregnant and what about all the other genders? Stop. Just stop. Everyone knows what's true from creation. Everyone knows that men are men, women are women, men can't get together and make babies, women can't get together and make babies, men get together with women. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked, and it is not that hard to figure out. But fallen man doesn't want to acknowledge what's true. And the end of verse 27, he shows that there are consequences in their sin. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This goes along with what he said in verse 24, their bodies being dishonored. But I think we've seen throughout history that it carries over into other areas where there are even physical consequences for sin. Throughout history, sexual immorality has had consequences. STDs, AIDS, now even monkeypox is something that is predominantly seen among homosexual men. Of course, they'll say, but it could affect anyone. Well, sure it can, because men and women sin in many different ways. Men who get monkeypox will probably end up having sex with women at some point, and they'll have sex with someone else, and it will become a bigger and bigger thing and spread. And of course, I read something recently where a man who got monkeypox, um, and he got it from another man, what was his biggest criticism? That no one has been seriously working on getting a vaccine rolled out fast enough to help people. So for him, getting this disease isn't a wake-up call that maybe he shouldn't be out indulging in his lusts that lead to impurity, dishonoring his own body. That's not the thought that crosses his mind. Instead, he's calling for something he can, uh, he can inject himself with so that he can keep indulging in the same degrading and sinful lifestyle that he's been engaging in, receiving in his own person the due penalty of his error. The mindset of fallen man is truly remarkable. But again, what's the issue? As much as we don't like it, as much as we find it offensive, homosexuality isn't the issue. Gay marriage isn't the issue. Transgenderism isn't the issue. They're the bright yellow flowers. What's the issue? They reject God. Churches go on crusades against homosexuality. Why? Why do they do that? Well, they say it's a threat to what's decent. It's a threat to morality. It's a threat to our Christian country. Well, I've got news for you. This isn't a Christian country. Never has been. It might have had a larger percentage of Christians in it at one point in time, but this is not a Christian nation. Our nation, just like every other nation, is firmly under the power of the evil one, of Satan, because the world is under his power. Trying to clean up our country, our society, that's mowing over the dandelions. That's spending time and energy on cleaning up the yard, making it look all green, but not getting rid of the roots. What does the world need? What does our society need? They don't need to be told not to get married to each other. They don't need to be told to not pretend to be a man or a woman when they aren't a man or a woman. They need the gospel. 
they need salvation. What happens if we pass every law that cleans up every sexual sin that we can think of? Does that clean the hearts of men? Does that, does that make men finally say, well, I can't practice those sins anymore. I guess I've got no choice but to finally acknowledge God and do things his way. No, it doesn't work that way. And we know it doesn't work that way. As Paul's been telling us here, man suppresses what's true. And he darkens his heart and finds ways to dishonor God. You take away one avenue of, sin, of man's rebellion and he'll just find another one. I chop off the top of one weed over here, I'm just going to see it pop up over here tomorrow. That doesn't change the heart. Only the gospel changes the heart. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Sometimes, probably many times as believers, we get caught up in the wrong battles. We spend our time and energy in the wrong ways. We go on crusades against sins, individual sins, abortion. That's one that I find the most offensive. I get guilty of it too. I hate that one. I absolutely hate it. But we find these individual sins to get worked up about and forget about the real issue. People in the world need the gospel. Paul goes to Corinth. And he determined to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and him crucified. There were other sins in Corinth. They had idolatry. They had homosexuality. They even had incest in Corinth. But he came to that city preaching the gospel. Now we're going to move on. We're going to look at these other sins as well in the next verses. I know it doesn't seem like it, but the goal is to finish the chapter this morning. We won't take a detailed look at each one of these. They are pretty much self-explanatory. But I'd ask you as we look at them, do we have the same kind of passion for stamping these out that we do for the last one? For some of the ones that we see as particularly repulsive or distasteful, yes, homosexuality is sin. Yes, it's offensive to God. But so are the rest of these that we see in the following verses. And I'd hazard to guess that we don't all put the same emphasis on some of these, even though these are all offensive to God as well. So look with me at what he says in verse 28. See how he starts off the next statement. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Now, once again, what does Paul talk about? their failure to acknowledge God, their rejection of him. And he goes right back to that. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of corruptible things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now in verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. The wording here indicates that this is a calculated, reasoned-out response to God. They know God. We saw that in verses 18 through 23. They have knowledge of him, and that's what's seen here as well. The word for acknowledge means to have knowledge of something. The word for see fit means to weigh something or put it to the test and make up your mind. So this is saying, as they consider their knowledge of God, they decide to reject him. And what's the result? Same as the other verses. God gave them over to impurity in verse 24, to degrading passions in verse 26. And now what do we see here in verse 28? To a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper. It's worth noting that the word that Paul uses here for depraved is related to the word he used for see fit. That word meant to test, like putting something to the test. Here, this word is something that was tested and found not to be worthy. We might say it failed the test. So in their minds, they test out God and don't find him worthy of their knowledge. But the reality is their minds are what aren't truly worthy. They are worthless. And once again, it's God's judicial action to turn them over to those worthless minds to do those things which aren't proper. 
because that's what the mind of someone who has no need for God, that's all that they are able to accomplish, things that aren't proper. There are a number of passages we could look at, but for time, I just want to turn over to one of them with you. Look at Titus chapter 1 with me. In Titus 1, Paul is warning against false teachers, Judaizers in Titus chapter 1. And at the end of the chapter, he says this about them. Look at verse 16. He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any deed, any good deed. The word worthless, that's our word depraved in Romans 1.28. They are worthless, detestable. And you see the result. They are unable to accomplish any good deed. The unbeliever might try to do good things, but in God's eyes, they aren't good at all. We'll see later in Romans when we get to chapter 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God and unable to please him. Things that they would call good are done with worthless minds that have rejected God. They aren't good deeds at all. They are the filthy rags of their own righteousness that Isaiah talks about. But back in Romans 1, it's important to see this process that we have here, even just in verse 28. He said they don't acknowledge God, for that's their basic failure. That is what is worth, uh, worthy of his wrath and judgment. He says they are given over by God to their worthless or depraved minds. That is God's judgment upon them. And he says that, and the result of that, they do things that are not proper. They continue on in their lives, indulging in the lusts of their flesh, enslaved to their sins. It's important that we understand the process here. So once again, we understand what it is that they really need, salvation. And that's that's the part that is focused on back in step number one. Okay, so beginning in verse 29 uh, through verse 31, we have 21 sins listed here. And really, there are three groupings. And like I said, we won't take a lot of time on these individually, but we'll take a look at them. The first group starts in verse 29. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Now, note here the word he uses at the very beginning, being filled with. The word that Paul uses here, as well as the tense of the verb used, indicates that what we have is that the unregenerate man has been and continues to be completely filled up in in every way with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. That's a pretty damning statement from Paul. When God looks at fallen men and women, he doesn't see a bad deed here and there, one or two flaws, spots in their character. No, when God looks at fallen man, he sees nothing but unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Unrighteousness, we've talked about before. Paul mentioned it back in verse 18. It's what they suppress the truth in. It's a failure to measure up to what God's standard is. He is righteous. Our own righteousness apart from him is nothing. It's worthless. Wickedness and evil are synonyms here. He'll also mention malice a bit further on that goes with these. These are general terms for evil. The word wickedness is the word used to describe Satan in 1 John 5.19, where it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Greed. If, If this isn't something that stems from an idolatry of self, then I don't know what does. Always wanting more for yourself. Always looking to get whatever you can. That's how the unregenerate mind thinks and operates. I won't acknowledge God so that I am free to live for myself and indulge whatever lusts that I can. That's the mentality. In the second part of verse 29, he uses another word for the next set of sins here, full of. And it's really a synonym of the last one, still indicating that something is just that, full of something. It's permeated with it. But now he lists envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. These aren't groundbreaking lists. We recognize that these are all bad things. Envy goes along with greed. You want something you don't have, never content with what you have. But from envy, we go to murder. And to us, that seems like quite a stretch, doesn't it? But it's not really, because it all comes from the same place. A futile mind who has rejected the truth of God. All of these do. Strife is contention between people. Deceit, 
not being honest, trying to deceive someone. Malice, again, another word for evil, for wickedness. Paul is running through the spectrum of things here because they are all the same. They are all related. We might say, well, I wouldn't say that murder is the same as deceit. Aren't there degrees of sin? Aren't there things that are worse than others? I think that when we start to look at sins in terms of degrees, we show that we fail to understand just how reprehensible sin really is. Any sin. Does every sin uh, or does every fallen sinner murder? No. But they're capable of it. They're capable of anything. They're filled up, permeated with all kinds of wickedness, whether they act upon them or not. We've all heard news stories of people who have committed heinous crimes. And inevitably, we'll hear somebody say, they'll interview somebody who says, I never saw it coming. I just can't believe that that they would do that. That was so out of character for them. Well, if they have rejected God and they have been handed over to their sin, then anything is possible. He continues on at the end of verse 29. The final grouping is the last 12 things he says, starting here with gossip. He says they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You can see that that listing here isn't centered on any one type of sin. We had sexual sins earlier. He mentioned murder. Now we have gossip and slander. We have disobedience to parents, untrustworthy. There really isn't any rhyme or reason to Paul's list here. They talk badly about others. They hate God. They invent evil. One group of words that should catch our attention here, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Those things are considered good qualities today. We call it pride, puffing yourself up, getting that self-esteem pushed way, way up there. We just got done with one pride month. We have another uh, we have other occasions where we're told to be proud of ourselves. Everything we do, we have to have pride in. They want us to teach our children these things. And they will teach our children these things when we send them to the world's schools. That's what they take pleasure in. That's what they see as good and righteous. The world takes what God says is sinful and turns it into something to celebrate, something to encourage. These types of things come out of a futile mind, a depraved mind that has rejected God. Without understanding, in verse 31, this one has been likened to someone having a lack of common sense. It's a fool. Tell me the difference between a man and a woman. It supposedly can't be done today unless you have a biology degree. And even then, I'm sure the biological definition wouldn't be accepted. The list goes on, but the things that we see here These are all the results of the mind that has been handed over to its own depravity. The fallen man who has rejected the truth about God. These are the things that we end up with. It's no wonder that the world is so messed up. We have it bad today, but again, it was bad in Paul's day as well. It was bad back in Abraham's day. Make no mistake, these things have been going on since the fall. The sinfulness of man stemming from his rejection of God. There is no good that can ever come from that, that ever has come from that. Man tries to come up with his own good, and that is absolute folly, absolute foolishness, because he does everything he can to cut God out of the picture, when God should be at the very center of the picture. There are more things that we could say about that list, but we need to get to verse 32 and finish up the chapter. He says in verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Once again, we see their knowledge of God. All through this chapter, from verse 18 on, they know, they know God, they have knowledge of him. He is not hidden from them at all. They know the ordinance of God. Ordinance here simply means law. Now, he's not talking about the Mosaic law, but just the law of God. This is referring back to the list we just saw. All these things, they know they are wrong. They know they are sin. You ask anyone, anyone, present this list to them and ask them, is it okay to lie? 
Is it okay to murder, to slander, to be untrustworthy? They know that these things are not okay. Some of them, sure, like we talked about, they try to cover. They try to make them out to be something praiseworthy. But they know that they're not right. And beyond that, Paul says that those that practice such things are worthy of death. When you ask someone if they are good enough to go to heaven, they often say things like, well, I do more good things than bad things. Why do they say that? Because they know the bad things will condemn them. They understand sins, immoral acts, uh, are things that will condemn them. That's the whole point here. They have this knowledge. They are without excuse. They know that people that do these things are worthy of death. They approve of others doing them. They do them themselves. These are the things that are characteristic of those who have rejected God. I can't stress that enough. We look at this list, and we see things we don't like. And for good reason. They're sinful. We shouldn't like these things. They offend God. They should offend us. But they are a manifestation of a life that has been handed over to their own sins, to their own depravity. We want to crusade against things like homosexuality and abortion. What about gossip? What about disobedience to parents? Do we want to spend the same amount of time and energy on those? Not usually, no. What laws do we want to pass today against deception, against envy? Those are listed there as well. These are the annoying yellow flowers. Yes, they are bad. Yes, on the day of judgment, they will be judged. They will receive payment for their transgressions. But it's not our job to stop the manifestation of their sin. It's our job to be sharing with them the truth of the gospel message. That's what our crusade should be. That's where our time and energy should be spent when it comes to the depravity that we find in this lost world. They need salvation. Cutting out that weed of sin at the root and providing them with the righteousness of God that only comes through the message of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for these sins of ours so that we could be justified before the Holy God.